Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Scorpions might terrify most people, like myself, but to scientist Lauren Esposito, they're the foundation of her career, which has taken her from her home in El Paso, Texas, through graduate school in New York, and here to us in the Bay at the California Academy of Sciences. In addition to discovering new species of these arachnids, she's also become an outspoken advocate for queer scientists. An ongoing exhibit she curated at the California Academy of Sciences celebrates the contributions of LGBT, LGBTQ plus people. And Esposito joins us as part of our first person series, which profiles leaders and change makers in the Bay Area. Welcome to Forum, Dr. Lauren Esposito. Hi, thank you so much. Happy Friday. Oh, yeah, same to you. We've been wanting to have you on the show for a while. I'm so excited to have you here. Um, I need to know first, because I'm terrified of scorpions, when did you find your first scorpion? And were you like, oh, cool, a scorpion? Or or what happened? I mean, I think that my reaction was the same as like pretty much anybody else in the world's reaction when they first saw a scorpion, which was I was scared. I think that's pretty mm-hmm. natural. Um, I grew up in the desert southwest, which is a place that I think like most people identify with scorpions here in here in the U.S. and and certainly I saw scorpions as a kid growing up and kept a, a far distance from them because they were terrifying. Right. So how did I mean? How did you go from that um, being terrified of of scorpions to did basically devoting your life to them? Well, you know, I think it, it was it was a wild ride full of mistakes uh, and missteps along the way that which all worked out really, really well. But I went, you know, I think like most young people, I went to college trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, I fell up. I fell into the lap of scorpions, so to speak, during a summer internship at the <laughs> Hopefully American not literally. University. Hopefully sort of just figuratively fell into the lap of scorpions. Just, just, just figuratively, <laughs> although I will say that I, I um, definitely was taken aback by natural history museums and the collections contained within natural history museums and so in that sense like I did fall into the lap of scorpions because their natural history museums have old specimens those specimens are a record of life on earth in a specific time and place and my job then during that summer internship was to go through this incredible collection of scorpions from southern Africa and and carefully database and curate those specimens and and for me it was the first time I'd seen the behind the scenes of a natural history museum. And it was the first time I'd ever like been up close and personal with a scorpion, really. Mm. So this is like, you've basically got a big drawer. You've got drawers full of scorpions that you're like opening and you're sort of taking them out and you're making sure that they've been tagged properly and they're like geolocated on a map. Like that's what you're doing for the whole summer. That is That was like basically my summer. But in addition to all that, I also got to extract DNA out of their leg muscles. Um, and so that unlocked like a whole other world for me, which is studying the DNA of, of the animal of animals. Yeah, I guess that's, you know, that's my other question. I know that you and I'm going to ask you about this in a second. I know that you like go around the Caribbean 
finding scorpions, uh, which the first part sounds great True. at least. Um, <laughs> but what is the what is the science that you're sort of reaching for? Like, what are you trying to to use these specimens to explain about how the world works? Well, I think that's a really great question, um, and it might sound like I think to most people like pretty quite esoteric that I study scorpions, but but really, scorpions they've been around for about 430 million years. Um, and they're, they're, even though we associate them with desert ecosystems, they're everywhere. Like California is a hot spot for diversity of scorpions. And they're really, really important parts of ecosystems that have evolved alongside these scorpions. And so one of the things that my lab is really focused on is making up for the gap in human knowledge. We only have discovered somewhere around 50% of arachnids, which is scorpions and spiders and other related organisms that are living on Earth today. Like we don't know very much about them. And so what that means is that we don't know very much about how ecosystems function, how to detect early warning signs that ecosystems aren't functioning anymore, and what we can do to intervene when things start to fall apart. And, and that's really what I've tasked my lab with, with figuring out. Also, what happens to scorpions after a big fire like we've seen here in the state? I mean, are we, are we destroying the scorpion ecosystems? We are. And, and in fact, we're doing this huge project statewide right now where we're going to um, pretty much all of the forested ecosystems in the state of California, looking for this one species of scorpion that we find almost in all the forests. And what we found, and it's quite been quite devastating of a year for us during this collecting expeditions, is that in all the places where the, where the fire was really intense, they're gone. They're just mm. gone. And these are long-lived animals. They can live for up, up to 25 years. They're slow animals. Their metabolism is really slow. They walk really slow. Like they're not flying through the air. And so the amount of time that it's going to take them to come back after the forest starts to regenerate, we have no idea about. And, and so we're trying to really establish that baseline still. You were talking with Lauren Esposito about her life and work as curator of arachnology at the California Academy of Sciences. And we want to hear from you. Do you have any pressing questions about scorpions? And if you're in science and identify as LGBTQ, what's your experience of the field been? You can give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So, Dr. Esposito, I, I wanted to ask you about the work that you've done uh, with 500 queer scientists. Um, what, was the, what was the hope with that campaign, and what is it, how do you actually execute? Oh, great question. And my, I think my favorite topic, really, um, even though I love scorpions, <laughs> uh, is talking about the experience of LGBTQ people working in science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and medicine, uh, the STEM fields, as we call them. And, and, you know, I, I had this like sort of life epiphany a few years back uh, in 2018, where I realized that I, I, had, I had my dream job. My dream job is the curator of arachnology at the California Academy of Sciences. As, a, as, a, as an arachnologist, there's not very many of those jobs in the country. Uh, and I'd managed to secure one. And, I, and it was in a really, really queer friendly city, which for me was very important because mm -hmm. as an out queer person, uh, I wanted to live somewhere where it was comfortable comfortable for me to express my identity. Mm -hmm. And I, re I, I just had this moment where I realized that the Cal Academy, it's the oldest natural history museum west of the Mississippi. It's one of the oldest scientific institutions in the state of California. It was 165 years old at the time that I had this realization that I was the first openly queer and probably even closeted queer curator in the mm -hmm. history of this scientific institution. 
And why, you know, the question is, why is that? Um, and I think the, the answer is, is, is complex. It's complex, it's nuanced, um, but it has a lot to do with the history of the experience of being queer in science uh, and the ways that people who, who are queer have been ostracized and excluded from either actively from science or from talking about their identity within the context of their profession. Is that when you decided to put on this exhibition at Cal Academy? Is that when you were like, okay, this is a nuanced and difficult issue. I'm going to tell the stories of individual people and how they've come up so people can kind of see that whole array of experiences. Yes, but actually not yet. So my first step was I, I launched this visibility campaign called 500 Crew Scientists. Um, and it was really, uh, in many ways, a way for me to tell my story of being a queer person in the context of my identity as a scientist. Mm. Um, it's a social media campaign. And when we launched, I had managed to find 50 other LGBTQ identifying scientists out there in the world somewhere. Uh, and so we launched with these 50 stories not really knowing what was going to happen. Um, and, and over time, the number of stories contributed to our campaign has grown to over 1,600. It re represents people from all around the world, from almost every stage of the career, all the way from like directors of major research institutes like CERN in Europe um, to undergraduate students and people really just looking for a way to express and celebrate their identities. Mm. And that spirit of celebration is what brought me to the point of, of launching this, this new exhibit at the Cal Academy. Yeah. And so what's in the exhibit? Tell, tell us a little bit about it for people. It's still up, right? It's up through uh, it early next year. Yeah. Yes, please come see it. So, so New Science uh, is a, an exhibit up on the public floor at the Cal Academy, but also an exhibit that's available free of charge for any other public space in the world to, to, to show in their own space. Um, and it's, it's an exhibit that focuses on queer and intersectional identities of women, gender nonconforming, transgender people who are also in many cases, people of color or immigrants, um, and how that complex identity makes their science better, and mm. how how it's not about um, this this sort of minus or deficit perspective of how we how their work has been hindered or their identities have hindered their ability to do science, but really why their identity. And I think that this is what's really revolutionary about new science. In addition to it being the first ever exhibit focused on LGBTQ identities in a science museum in, ever in the world, um, is that, that it really talks about how these queer and intersectional identities make people better scientists and make science better. Um, because it means that people who have complex intersectional identities think about and approach problems in new and different ways. And we, as a global community, really need those new ways of thinking if we're ever going to tackle the major problems that we're experiencing globally, like like global climate change and things like COVID. Um, and so we need the, the, that, that diverse perspective of, of views and, and interpretations of, of data and science. Well, how about for you? I mean, how do you think your multifaceted intersexual identity has influenced your particular science? That's a great question. And it's one that, 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 I, that I think about often. Um, because I, I, you know, I, as, as much as I advocate for how identities make you better scientists, I wonder in my own self how I, how my particular identity has made me a better science scientist. And I think, you know, for one, for one thing, it's made me realize the importance of advocacy and being an advocate for something. Mm. Um, I like really never thought about myself as as like a diversity, equity, and inclusion person, or an advocate, or or um, 
an activist, I would even say. Like, I, I just never had that that self-reflection of my identity and, and framed in that way. And, and in thinking about new science, I started to think about the ways that my experience impacted me and how I can change the culture of science to influence the, the perspective of future generations, right? And so while I think that it has had an impact on my science and on the ways that I've interpreted the world around me, I also think that like, for me personally, it's led my path to a place where not only do I wanna do science better, but I want science to be better. And, and I think in many ways, that's, that's sort of my personal path going forward. Yeah. You know, I wondered, maybe this is, uh, you, you tell me if this makes sense, but I wonder if it maybe changes your relationship to the places where you're doing field work too. Maybe it sensitizes you to some things about the power dynamics of scientists coming in from the outside to sort of collect the specimens of, the, of, of a local place. Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely. And, and I think that we're entering, you know, from the perspective of natural history, natural history is really ingrained with colonialism, like the, the origins of the practice of natural yeah, history totally. were like the Victorian era, people going and sort of conquering places on earth by collecting specimens and extracting those specimens and bringing them back to Europe or North America. And I think that that colonialism mindset is is something that that's in turmoil at the moment. I think most mm of the current generation of young natural historians understand and recognize that there has to be a better way to do this and that we're never gonna solve the global biodiversity crisis that's happening, which is a, a crisis that's real. We, we're experiencing decline of species on earth at a rate that's unprecedented. And so as somebody who spends their life and their career studying species and I documenting the earth to see that decline and that rate of decline means that we're up against a race that we're not winning like the race of decline is greater than our ability to do science which means we need to do science smarter and better but most importantly what we need to do is empower and provide resources directly to to, to allow for autonomy of science in places of the world that normally haven't had access to to the scientific resources needed to do this kind of work and and that means yes absolutely changing the way that we go to places conduct field work who we're interacting with and more importantly, who gets credit for the science that's being done? And, and that's something that I that I care absolutely passionately about and, and something that I'm attempting to tackle uh, in my own work. But I think, you know, in addition, in addition to that, like a, as it pertains specifically to queer identities, like my lab is, a, is almost entirely a queer lab. Like the students, and it's not because I'm going out there and actively trying to recruit students and mentees who identifies LGBTQ, it's because they're looking for that mentorship. Mm. Um, and so like that makes me very excited and super proud to know that that people are coming to my lab to study scorpions, which may not necessarily have what they thought was gonna be their life passion. Um, and, and they're doing that because they wanna be young scientists in a place and a space that feels super comfortable for them. Yeah. Uh, wanna talk a little bit about local scorpions. We've got some uh, questions coming in about that. One listener asks, I regularly see scorpions in my downstairs room and garage in the North Bay. Is this type of scorpion dangerous? What happens if I get stung? First of all, I do not think I would go into my downstairs room if I regularly saw scorpions. And what do you, but, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's like sharks, you know, we're, we're a bigger yeah. danger to them than they are to us. Well, that is, that is definitely true that it is like sharks. So, there, so far we've documented somewhere around 2,500 species of scorpion on earth and, and like, like fewer than 1% of those are dangerous to humans in any wow. real significant way. 
Um, you know, all scorpions, like, like all sharks have teeth. All scorpions have a stinger. They can sting you. It hurts. Um, it mostly, in most experiences, feels like a, like a mild bee sting um, with effects lasting for just a few hours at, or maybe a day. Um, so, you know, pretty mild localized pain. So you've gotten, you've gotten stung by scorpions. I've gotten stung probably by the only scorpion that that person finds in their basement, um, which I'm guessing because it's the most common thing, um, that, that, that people see in areas, in areas around the Bay. Uh, it's the Western forest scorpion. So this, the scorpion that I mentioned earlier, that's found in forests throughout the state of California. And, um, it's really totally harmless like i have what's it look like it. what's it look like it, what color it's, is it it's, yeah it's like really dark brown sort of like a walnut color maybe and mm-hmm. and it's maybe like the length of your thumb depending how long your thumbs are wow. uh and it's you know scorpions like most things they they really don't want to sting you that stinging you is an absolute last resort that they only do if they feel like their life is in danger and they might die imminently so uh, no need to worry. You can pick it up. Like so also scorpions can't jump, which I think is like something that when I learned felt relieving. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're not like spiders. Like they can't launch themselves in the air. They can just run. And they're not even really good at running like up things in a vertical space. Uh, so they can just run. So you can scoop it into a, a even a, just a dust pan and, and throw it outside. And it would be very happy to be returned to the wild. God. Um, Another listener asks, this is one of the best questions we've ever gotten on the show. What is going on with a scorpion's face? <laughs> what is going on with a scorpion? There's so much going on with a scorpion's face because what the super cool thing about scorpions is like like other arachnid groups, they have a lot of eyes, right? Like spiders, we know they have tons of eyes. Scorpions also have tons of eyes. And in fact, they have three sets of eyes. And those three sets of eyes are arranged kind of in a triangle with two sets up at the front corners of their head and one set right in the middle. And some people have hypothesized that because of the arrangement of their eyes, they're able to triangulate their position from starlight, which is crazy. Like triangulation is the way that your phone knows where you are. It looks up in the sky and finds like cell towers. They have special eye GPS. Yeah, Yeah, they have like (laughs) eye GPS. Exactly. It's so crazy. Wow, that's amazing. Um, We have been talking with Lauren Esposito as part of our first-person series, which profiles leaders and changemakers in the Bay Area. Tell us one more time, Lauren, about uh, Dr. Esposito, about the exhibition at Cal Academy, when people can see it, too. Yeah, so come come to the Cal Academy. We're open for business. We've launched a new exhibit called New Science, which focuses on queer and intersectional identities of women and gender minorities in science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and medicine. Uh, you can see that for the foreseeable future, at least through March, uh, yeah. up on our public floor. You can also visit it dirt- virtually if you're not in the Bay Area on the Cal Academy Google Arts and Culture Digital Museum platform. Um, we have a full digital museum uh, exhibit that, that that tells all these stories of these amazing That's people. Awesome. Dr. Esposito is curator of Arachnology at the Cal Academy of Sciences. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Have a good weekend. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. 
Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair, available wherever you get your podcasts.